Thank you so much, Pastor Joe and David. You know, when you're serving God, singing out His praise like that, it's the highest order of joy a person can know. But He didn't give us all voices like that, did He? So He gave you a different way to know that joy. And of course, He didn't give His fingers for the keys of the piano quite like Pastor Joe's either. So may we serve Him and find that joy with the gift He gave. Amen? Amen. And this morning, I'm going to talk with you about the gift of prophecy. We started our series with Jesus on prophecy talking about the gift of prophecy. And we're going to end it talking about the gift of prophecy. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. You have sent us light and leadership. That spirit of the prophets has inhabited the hearts of mothers and fathers and teachers and preachers down through the ages. I pray, Lord, may we embrace it again for edification, for exhortation, and for consolation. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning I've entitled my message, Blood on the Hands of the Remnant and the American Dream. I mentioned last night that the world is hungry for genuine Christianity, a principled Christianity. And not one that says, my dogma is. Now we learn that doctrine is very important. It's the bones upon which the heart and the flesh of a body can operate and maneuver. But a principled Christianity is what like Jesus spoke to the woman at the well. He said, those who worship me must worship in spirit and in truth. It's not enough to have a head in the game. If the heart's not in the game, there's a serious problem. I didn't get married over my head, although my head was in the game. And I'm not going to stay married and be at the marriage supper of the Lamb without my heart being in the game. I have to tell you at the beginning of this message, for many, there's a lot of head game and a little heart game. And I'm here this morning to invite you to make a decision to change it. You can change it by starting with your head. When somebody wanders outside the sacred circle of marriage and they allow the heart affections to go out to someone else, it doesn't mean the original marriage is over. What it means is someone's going to have to make a really hard decision and say, the relationship I'm in has inadvertently grown to be wrong. But I can choose to go back to the original source of love and the promise I made, knowing that my head can lead my heart. So this morning, I'm going to challenge the church. I'm going to challenge any Seventh-day Adventist that's listening to me. And I'm going to invite those who are not Seventh-day Adventists to consider of whether or not what I've told you over the week is truth. And if it's truth, to follow it. So when it's all said and done, I'm not here with any misgivings about where I'm going. I'm going to issue an invitation for you to move. For you to move. Why is there a hunger for genuine Christianity? Because materialism hasn't done it. You can get more, you can have better. You can trade in the last model on the new. People do it with people too. But it doesn't satisfy. And of course, pleasure hasn't found itself in the pantheon of lasting 
satisfaction either. You can shoot up. You can watch something exhilarating on a screen. You can sit down and eat yourself into the pit, whatever it might be, when it's all said and done, whether it's watching people get blown away in a video game in which you're pushing the buttons or just on a screen where somebody else has engineered the entertainment for you. Pleasure doesn't satisfy long-term either. I didn't say these things don't satisfy at all. The devil isn't dumb. There's not a quick There's not a situation he presents that doesn't have a quick dopamine hit to it. There's pleasure out there. It just leaves ashes in your mouth. And of course, technology's got a little bit of a thrill on the front side too. But in the end, it may be the emptiest of them all. But God is calling today a people on this earth to come into an emotionally, spiritually, relational, intimate relationship with Him in which their joy is the joy of knowing they're loved and loving back and loving around. There is a group on the earth today that God calls His church. For 120 years, God was seeking to redeem the earth, as I mentioned the other night. If the people would have repented, God would have called off the flood. Just like when Abraham was mediating on behalf of Sodom, at least he thought he was mediating. He didn't really know the heart of God like he would. You won't destroy that city for 50 people, will you? And when Jonah had to be in that insecure posture as a preacher, which is which unless you've been in that position, you can't empathize with him. But if you're a prophet, it's because you tell the future. And how many of those people, after the fire didn't consume the city of Nineveh, said, I wonder if he was really right or if this was just a bunch of psychology and sociology all wrapped up in one. He thought about it. He knew that he might be considered a false prophet, and he didn't like it. But God does have a heart full of mercy, and when the conditions change, he's willing to change. Long after the Jewish nation has rejected the special covenant that God sought to confirm with them in the life of Jesus, Peter is writing these words. You, speaking to Jew and Gentile, it doesn't matter where you're at. It's the New Testament church. It's comprised of both. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people. Now, I'm not going to glide by this slide because it's about you. You. Me, we are part of this special family of God, chosen, paid for with the royal blood of Jesus, a holy nation. We don't have a geographical border or boundary that defines us, but we are nonetheless known by God, written in his book, and he's looking forward to bringing us home into the kingdom. And what's our job? We are to proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what do you think the devil's one ambition is? To make sure that you forget you're royal, you're chosen, you're special, and you know what else? You've got a job. Are we doing it? When you take a step to follow truth and become part of God's commandment-keeping people, you do not deny any truth that you believed in the past. I want to tell you, when I've shown you the progress of God's restoration of His church, starting in the early days with the translation of the Bible, on to righteousness by faith and grace with Martin Luther, on to other truths like baptism, sanctification, etc., with Calvin, the Anabaptist, the Methodist. We're standing on the shoulders of those who are looking to recover from the dark ages, truths that were lost, but they were regained in the freedom to study the Word. We are on a journey with Jesus. And while we may appreciate our past, we commit ourselves to going with Jesus. Amen? I don't know where you're at. 
You may never have heard about the Seventh-day Sabbath until the last couple of weeks. You did come to a Seventh-day Adventist church, so you probably thought you would eventually. But some of you have been going to church on Saturday for decades. Does that mean the journey's over? You made it to your destination? Not hardly. We're going with Jesus. It's a journey, and He's going with us. Praise the Lord. So, those who are looking for truth should be looking for a church that embraces as much of Bible doctrine as anyone can find, that stands on the solid shoulders of the prophets, the preachers, and the teachers of the past, but always only tested by the Word of God. Timothy was written to, and Paul said this, I write so that you may know how to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. I want to remind you, friends, one of my favorite authors says, enfeebled and defective as she may be, the church is the one object of God's supreme regard. Churches sometimes enfeebled. Sometimes it's very defective. Why is it defective? Because you collect all of us with our cor- and you create a corporately defective group. Except for one thing, with our eyes fixed on Jesus and His healing touch on our shoulder, our hand in His, the healing is going on in the midst of the stumbling and sometimes the missteps. John was writing when he recorded the words of Jesus. Jesus said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. When these words come into our experience, when we actually surrender to them and let them be the guide of our life, our very nature is changed. That's why Peter could write, through the exceeding great and precious promises, we become partakers of the nature of God. Listen, you want it fixed from the outside in? Put the Word on the inside, and what's happening on the outside will change. We'll know the truth, Jesus said, and it will make you free. And so we come down to this book of Revelation, and as I mentioned last night, we have two cities, Babylon and the New Jerusalem. We have two women, the adulterer and the pure woman. The pure woman has the pure doctrines. She's giving the life-giving water of life, whereas the other woman is making people drink of the wine, the corrupted, fermented, ruinacious, if there's such a word, wine of false doctrine. These two women in the story of the end. Paul would use this metaphor of the pure woman and marriage. He would say, speaking of the Corinthian church, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealously, for I have betrothed you to one husband. Who is that one husband? Jesus Christ, that I may present you as a chaste virgin. Purity of life and doctrine is important. He wants a church without a spot or a wrinkle. We know a battle began in heaven where the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil, and then Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So thus we see the battle lines drawn up. He wants to devour and destroy, especially the woman and her offspring. Let's look at a few episodes in the great controversy. Satan rebels against God in heaven. Fortunately, Christ wins. Satan loses. Satan comes down here to earth and he knows God is going to try to redeem the ones that he has stolen away out of the family of God. And so he's there waiting to destroy their deliverer, waiting to take the one who's going to give birth. Jesus was the focus of all of Satan's animosity and hatred. But she did bear a child. The child would rule the nations. And we're looking forward to that day when righteousness will reign. No more sorrow, no more pain. The good news is 
Jesus was caught up to heaven after he finished the ministry of sacrifice to go on with the ministry of mediation, open up a relationship for us to go straight to his Father, and eventually on to a ministry of vindication. Can you say amen? This is one of the main things we've learned this week. The ministry of salvation is complete and full in the cross, but it's applied, it's made efficacious. In other words, it's made to work. The blood of Jesus now allows Him to bridge the gap between rebel sinners and a redeeming God. And that relationship changes us. And eventually Jesus can declare our names before the angels. That's what it says in the book of Revelation. We sing it. And before the angels we shall know our name confessed in heaven. Wouldn't it be something to have Jesus put your name on his lips and says, Come here, I want you to look at this. He's like Abraham. She's like Abraham. They're my friend. And I want to bring them home. Look at the record. You've had a chance to look at it. They are safe to save. And the angel says, Amen, Jesus. Amen. The good news is, is that the life of Christ, though difficult it was, was a victory. He died, it looked like, finished by the enemy, but he was not finished off. Jesus was caught up to heaven. Satan tries to destroy Christ, but Satan loses, Christ wins. Can you say amen? We're starting to see a tendency here, but now he turns his wrath on the church. There's a lot of suffering and persecution in those first three centuries. Last night I quoted from Larry Hurtado's book, Destroyer of the Gods. Even though the Christian church were looked at as simpletons and and ignorant, though they were made fun of and looked down on and persecuted, over the first three centuries, the Christian church broke the back of the Roman pantheon of gods, their group of gods. And when Christianity was done, it was now primarily a discussion of monotheism. So that, like I quoted on the screen last night, if you were to walk onto the street and say, do you believe in God? Someone wouldn't say, which one? Because it's not Poseidon and all the others that were in that great grouping of Roman gods. Christianity won the day. The love of Christ was more powerful than the animosity of the Roman government. All but one of the disciples died a martyr's death. And if tradition is true, they tried to dip John in boiling oil, couldn't kill him. It would have been a perfect flush if they could have. The church and state united in the days of Constantine. It led to great persecution. And we call this period of time the Dark Ages. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared for by God. There was a point in time for over a thousand years where the church with civil power had such control that if you didn't bow down to her dogmas and worship in her ways, she had no problem snuffing your life out, taking your estate, torturing you into submission. The Bible actually predicted in the days of John, the revelation of Christ, that Jesus knew there would come a point in time when the church would be small and it would be hidden in the recesses of the mountain, fled into the wilderness, that God should feed her, has the overtones of Elijah. And by the way, this period of time is 1,260 years. The Bible describes it as 42 months and as a time, time, and half a time. So it all comes back to that same period of time that relates to Elijah's three and a half years of hiding. And the angels beckoned that the ravens should get food and take them to Elijah, and they did. It was a dark and unfortunate period. We're not going to go into this prophecy. We did see during the week that in prophetic literature, a day equals a year, and God had actually prophesied for 1,260 days that the church would be in a difficult spot. We call that the Dark Ages. It was a time in which God's church went into hiding in order to survive. 
Reformers paid a high price. They were separated from families. Sometimes they gave up their lives. They often lost their estates and their freedom. Martin Luther stood before the Diet of Worms and declared that he was not backing up. If it had not been for the Spirit of God and those uh, noble leaders of Saxony and parts of Germany that stood in the way and actually worked behind the scenes, his voice would have been shuttered just like everyone else's. Satan tried to destroy the church during those 1260 years. The good news is Christ won and Satan lost. Can you say amen? We're on a roll, friends. We went past 1798 when those 1260 years ended. And strange thing happened. Enlightenment theory, democracy, certain revolutions and rebellions in different parts of the world. And we find the church past this 1260 years. God's people have been finding their way towards freedom, which has led them towards the United States. God has always had a chosen people. We tend to think of that as a reference to a special group of people for a period of about 1,800 years from Abraham to the cross. We call them Hebrews or Jews. The truth of the matter is, as we saw in the book of Peter, long after God had changed the way He was relating to Israel to work out His salvation, now He was going to work it out for the world through the church. There was a church in the wilderness. There was a church in the Old Testament. There was a church after the cross that also went into the wilderness. And coming out of the wilderness, it has a work to do. Amen? The book of Revelation describes the identified characteristics of God's last day people. And I want to talk with you about it. Now you know this text is on the wall behind me. I've turned around and pointed to it many times. It is perhaps one of the most elemental cornerstones of identification for what God's remnant or chosen look like in the end. The dragon was enraged with the woman. He went to make war with the rest of her offspring. Let's read it together. Who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. We let the Bible interpret itself. The commandments are ten. The only one most of Christendom doesn't agree on is the one that says to remember. I was in a Muslim mosque yesterday. I had a wonderful experience learning more about our Islamic brothers and sisters. And I was surprised when one of the teachers there told us that in Islam, the word for man means to forget. I wonder if it's because man is prone to forgetting. The one commandment that's been forgotten is the one that says remember. The one commandment that the devil doesn't want us engaging in is the relational commandment that would put Jesus in our heart to allow us to keep the other nine. Let me tell you, he's, a, he's an artful strategist and an amazing deceiver. So he's tried to substitute other works of Christ's ministry in place of the one that recalls creation following six days of making us. And also the Sabbath, Jesus rested on that after he redeemed us. And you know what else? When we get to heaven, we're going to be resting in Christ too. We're going to be celebrating what He's done. The Sabbath will be celebrated according to the book of Isaiah throughout all time and eternity. Why? Because being with God is what makes heaven heaven. It's not bad unless you've fallen in love with the world. Keep the commandments of God and they have the testimony of Jesus. Those t- that testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Bible tells us in the book of Ezekiel as well as in Hebrews that God will put the law into their hearts and into their minds. David loved the law of God because he loved God. And you know, he understood that holiness was beauty. 
He had been lied to and deceived. People had tried to kill him. When he was around people who followed and loved God, he rejoiced. He wrote songs about Jesus. And he led in a Christ-like manner. So they keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. We know the Bible describes what that is. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That spirit of prophecy is important. Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians 14, not the slide that's on the screen right now, tells us that there's lots of gifts you can have. But if it comes down to a decision about tongues or prophecy, he said, I wish you all had the gift of prophecy. Not just the preacher, not just mom and dad, but actually the child. There are times when your kids will say to you, mommy and daddy, I don't think we should do that. You know what that is, friends? That's a young, operative prophetic voice in the heart of that child that says, Mommy and Daddy, I don't think you should do that. I can remember when I was a kid, this didn't happen very often. My parents were quite solid on the Ten Commandments, even though they didn't go to church. But I can remember, you know, back in the old days before they could tether you with a pager or a cell phone. My dad worked with computers when computers filled whole rooms. And every once in a while, something would go wrong, and they'd call on the weekend. And every once in a while, my parents would say, my mom would say, when the, when the company called, tell them your dad's not home. She shouldn't have done that. It's very important that young people aren't stifled in the development of their spirituality. There came a point in time when my mother, who no longer has this habit, for years my parents smoke cigarettes. I want to tell you, the devil came to, do, to kill and destroy. And cigarettes will do it. And don't let the vaping industry make you think that what they've got is much better. It's not. But I'm here to tell you, there came a day when I said to my mom, I'm not buying you any more cigarettes. Oh, it was her money, but it were my legs that were walking over to get them for her. And it was proper for me to say, no, God comes first and you're making me contradict my own convictions. I'm not going to help you to the grave by buying you a weed that destroys and addicts. Paul didn't want the spirit of prophecy to be an overlooked gift. He wanted the church to be edified. That's taught and trained in righteousness. He wanted the church to be exhorted, which is to strongly encourage and to bring people back to truth. And he wanted the church to be comforted because they would suffer when they did what's right. Oh, you bet the devil's there to make you pay. You're going to pay. Don't be worried. Jesus pays much better wages. And the best one is his peace in your heart when you've done what's right. But Paul didn't want us coming short in any gift. He knew that the coming of Christ, we'd need gifts because spiritual warfare was going on around us. He tells us in the book of Ephesians, we're wrestling not against flesh and blood, but against principality and powers. You know what? You're not smart enough. You're not well enough trained, and neither am I, to go up against Satan. So to win, I need some spiritual gifts. And he knew, Paul knew, every single believer who gave their heart to Christ would get some. You may not recognize what they are, but if you want to recognize, start serving Christ and he'll guide you into the place where you discover them. Surveys are okay, but the best way to discover your spiritual gift is to serve Jesus. This Seventh-day Adventist church is probably the best educated religious group one of the best for sure, and the gifts of the Spirit poured out on doctors and teachers and preachers and engineers and construction uh, workers, contractors. You just go down through the list. 
One of the sweetest gifts someone gets, one of the most beautiful is the gift of time, the gift of speech, the gift of hope. You can give those out when you haven't been trained to do anything yet. And we ought to be teaching our kids how to serve. God's church is to be a spirit-filled church that does what, friends? Impacts the world. That's what I want to talk with you about today. Are we impacting the world? Or have we collected around ourselves the blessings, built a little wall that insulates us from the pain and, and convinced ourselves that it's okay because like the Jews in the age of Christ, we're chosen. We've got intellectual truth. We've got theological certainty. Jesus said to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, the good news is, wherever you go in His name, He goes with you. Amen? I'm inviting people today for whom this truth is new or for whom they're reconnecting with Christ. I'm inviting people today to make a decision to follow Him, to go down into this watery grave that represents the life of Christ. He came. He lived. He died. He was resurrected. That power, including the resurrection power, is for you and for me. God can break the chains that would make us forever a servant of Satan. And the joy is a fantastic thing. But this final last day movement can be identified very, very easily. In this first angel's message, as we've looked at it, we see that they have the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth. And indeed, it is a global endeavor. We also saw that they understood worship and prophecy because the hour of judgment has come. We give glory to God by how we live I'm going to say it again, friends. We give glory to God by how we live. And what you do here on Sabbath is just icing on the cake. Listen, have you ever read the book of Malachi? Last book in the Old Testament. God says, isn't there anybody that would close the doors of the church? Quick coming. Why? Because now for generations, by the time Malachi's on the scene, they're bringing their offerings. They're standing in the courts listening to the Levites. And the singers of Asaph. But during the day, they're robbing and stealing and extorting. They're lying. They're in love with money. And God says, you don't understand. What you do on Sabbath is built on what you do during the week. So if Christ isn't Lord of all of your life, as Paul said, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, then what you do here is really not the same sweet-smelling incense that it ought to be. Now, Christ is the one that makes our offerings fragrant anyway. But I'll tell you what, a heart that's lovingly surrendered to Him will gladly represent Him in the ordinary things of life. In an age of irresponsibility, God's calling for moral responsibility. Part of our moral responsibility, lest you don't get it from the sermon title already, part of our moral responsibility is to understand that the blessings we have received are for doing something for the world, not for just having a nice smooth glide path to come out of the storm and land on the other shore. We're not supposed to just make things good for us. We're supposed to let the world know that God's coming and they can live forever. The hour of judgment has come. This great work that we're a part of today was begun by William Miller and the Millerite movement. 
They were wrong on what the cleansing of the sanctuary was, but they were right on the fact that ministry, that something significant was transitioning. And indeed it did. Worship is at the heart of who we are. Part of what separates us is not only that we worship on the Sabbath, but that the world does not find its way into our lives and into our worship service. Worship wars are indeed what's in the heart of the book of Revelation, and it's going on now for the heart and soul of Protestantism. What does worship mean? How does it happen? The Creator made us in six days. Sixth day we were created, and He gave us the seventh day to rest. The Sabbath is a part of God's last day message. Why? Because the Sabbath is at the center of the saving relationship. Now, I, I want to be as positive as I can be, but I'm going to tell you something that's true. When, you know, just when we started this series two weeks ago, we were in the workup to all the climate strikes that were going to go on and the climate summit as a part of the UN gathering. And when we come to the appeal by the Church of Rome for the climate summit gathering and the re-education of civilization that's going to take place on May 14, 2020. Look, friends, if I was writing a, a sci-fi novel, I couldn't write it this good. But on May 14, there's a re-education of the world for the future global civilization, and it's happening in Rome. We're going to be re-educated about how to live on a planet that's getting too small and too dirty. And the rich are too, too rich and the poor are too poor. And the global educator will be the church of Rome. We shouldn't be terribly surprised since for years we've been preaching that the deadly wound would be healed. But I'm afraid right now we're kind of just, you know, driving Miss Daisy along here. And we think everything's going to be hunky-dory and we're going to drive our car into the American dream sunset. It ain't going to happen. The Sabbath. Where was I going with all that? In the midst of all that climate strike and climate summit, as soon as there's a video about what's going on May 14, 2020 in Rome, it's a reference back to the encyclical Laudato Si, which is the encyclical in which there is a call to Sunday worship. It's not a game. God invites us to be a part of His last day movement. So whether this is new to you or the movement is what needs to happen and the, new, the movement's new to you, and I don't mean the message, I mean the movement. God's church is not to sit on its laurels and enjoy its blessings when there are over a billion people who have never even heard that there is such a thing as the word gospel. God's true church is going to recapture the pure faith of the disciples. That's what's been happening from the days of Tyndale, Huss, Jerome, Wycliffe, Zwingli. It's going to recapture the pure faith of the disciples. It's going to have the dual, dual characteristics of keeping the commandments, all ten, and having the gift of prophecy in its midst. It will be a worldwide mission-driven movement, friends. I am so proud to be a part of the Seventh-day Adventist Church that in a few generations from its inception had already made it around much of the globe, but is still seeking to enter the hundreds of language groups dialect groups that have never ever gotten to look at a Bible or hear the name of Jesus. 
It's to call people to total commitment to Christ, whether they're living in a first world country or a developing country, and it is to lead people to the Bible Sabbath. It will encourage people to give their bodies to Christ, in other words, their lifestyles, all parts of themselves, eating, dressing, entertaining, recreating, schedule, checkbook, all of those things are for Jesus. That's going to require a relationship because how are you going to know how to live your life? But you are called to a daily sacrifice. Make a final appeal to accept the truth. That's what we're doing. So, in this church, I wish I had the statistics up here. Every so many minutes, a church is organized in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I don't know how many people will be baptized just during the time it takes me to preach this sermon, but it's hundreds. And I, it's not enough. It's still not enough. And the idea that we don't need missionaries with their checkbooks, with their calendar, with their youth, with their full scope of their career. We need a mindset that says everybody ought to know. Do you remember singing that song? That was a good song. Everybody ought to know. Go ahead. Everybody ought to know. Everybody ought to know who Jesus is. He's the lily of the valley. He's the bright and morning star. He's the fairest of ten thousand. Everybody ought to know. God's church is not going to be the biggest church at the end. It's going to be a David and Goliath showdown. It's not for us to say, well, who's, who's the most people going that way? Because Jesus said, look, it's a super highway to hell. It's a narrow mountain path to heaven. You get to decide. I'll wa- I'm walking this way if you want to go with me. The church is not in a majority, and you can never base your truth on a majority of opinion. We learned that the spirit of prophecy, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, about verse 23 or so, when a non-believer comes in and the spirit of prophecy is operative, The secrets of his heart are revealed. In other words, he's convicted that God is in this place reading all the truth about him personally. And Paul says he'll fall down on his face in worship. God's church is not needing the approval of other popular religious leaders. It knows that truth stands as truth and God will one day be the endorser. Now, I have in my hands here a baptismal certificate. Do you know how many bullet points there are on this certificate? There are some preachers in the audience. I was pleased to see our union presidents here this morning. The ministerial director from the Rocky Mountain Conference is here with us this morning. And I don't want to forget that we have Pastor Esther with us regularly and so many retired pastors as I look out. And of course, there's my staff here, God's staff to serve you. How many of you know what number 13 is? My wife knows because she heard the sermon first service. (laughs) Plus, I'd talk with her about my sermons ahead of time. She's a great advisor and a wonderful prayer partner. I'm going to read it to you. I once had a physician when I was a much younger man. 
asked me not to read it. When I baptize people, as a matter of fact, when anybody in this church baptizes people, we actually come up and actually confess their faith before men and women and children. And even as a young pastor, I would do this. And one day, a very respected physician, happened to be one of my friends, came to me and said, I don't think you should read number 13. It might make some people uncomfortable. Now listen, I brought with me this morning a book called Peculiar Speech by a church ministries professor at Duke University. He uses an entire book to basically say that preaching to the baptized and the converted is different than preaching to everybody else. He calls the book Peculiar Speech. I'm going to quote out of it in a few minutes. I'm glad for you to bring your friends every Sabbath morning. But you ought to warn them that it's going to be gospel preaching and it's going to be for conversion. And you don't know what that preacher might say and you don't want to be embarrassed by him. So just give them a warning. You might find yourself hearing something you never heard before. Don't let, it, don't let me sneak up on them like you didn't know who I was or who mandated me to preach or what my message was going to be. It's going to be law and grace every weekend. It's going to be the cloud and the cross every weekend. Now, I don't ever want to do anything to embarrass you with a lack of good judgment or culture. I don't live my life in a vacuum. It's not like I don't listen and watch and learn about what the modern media is doing to shape our culture. I know how it's being squeezed into a mold. But when I stand before you on this Sabbath morning, it's peculiar speech. I'm preaching to those that came into a church to hear a word from God. And if it disagrees with what they heard somewhere else, go talk to God. Get your Bible out. Was the preacher right or was the preacher wrong? I'll be quoting Walter Brugman in a few minutes here for all those preachers that are too timid. But number 13 says, I accept and believe that the Seventh-day Adventist Church is the remnant church of Bible prophecy. Oh, really? Well, what about all those others? Well, the book of Revelation is all about that. Number 13 doesn't say, I believe that everybody in the Seventh-day Adventist Church is going to heaven and nobody else is. Doesn't say that, friends. As a matter of fact, before we're all done here this morning, I'm going to tell you that there may be dozens, yea, hundreds, yea, thousands in the Seventh-day Adventist Church that leave the Seventh-day Adventist Church fast and glad and forever. And I'm going to tell you why. Because before you abandon the Sabbath, you abandon the spirit of prophecy. I didn't say that only Seventh-day Adventists are going to heaven. And I didn't say the Seventh-day Adventist church was perfect or better. All I said was, is that I believe the Seventh-day Adventist church is the remnant church, enfeebled and defective as she may be. She is trying to keep the commandments of God, and she has not yet corporately rejected the spirit of prophecy. And that the people of every nation, race, and language are invited and accepted into a fellowship of this local congregation of the world church. I hope you're not embarrassed. Now, if you're not behaving like a spirit-filled Christian, you probably ought to be. And if you're one of those Adventists, it embarrasses me. This is a little town here in Berrien Springs. 
with probably way too many Seventh-day Adventists in it. You don't have to say amen. (laughs) Most of them are seeking to be Spirit-filled. A few of them forgot that religion's a whole lot more than agreeing to 13 bullet points. Ezekiel chapter 3. I'm going to look at three scriptures with you. Open your Bibles. I didn't put them all on the slides today. Ezekiel chapter 3. This sermon isn't going to go on and on. But I want to look at Ezekiel chapter 3. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. In other words, personalize it, internalize it. I opened my mouth and he fed me this scroll. The book of Revelation talks about eating a scroll that was sweet in the mouth and bitter in the stomach. It's a description of the Millerite movement and their disappointment when Jesus didn't come in 1844. He said to me, Son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with this scroll which I'm giving you. Then I ate it and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. You see, Revelation quotes the Old Testament over and over again. Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech or difficult language, but to the house of Israel, nor to many peoples of unintelligible speech or difficult language, whose words you cannot understand, but I've sent you to them who should listen to you. Yet the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, since they're not willing to listen to who? When the prophet speaks... When the prophetic voice is operative, when we come to a house of worship and we've prayed for the divine worship hour, when the elder has knelt here like Pastor Hess knelt and prayed, it doesn't make me incapable of making mistakes. But it ought to assure you that somewhere between the... the, the frailty of my humanity and your desire to encounter God, the Holy Spirit will get in the middle and do something. But if you're not in the habit of listening to God during Sunday morning before you get up and get out the door and Sunday evening when you come back and in all the parts in between, but if you don't have time to get to know God in His Word, which is where you learn to hear His voice, what makes you think when the prophet speaks, you're going to listen any better? As a matter of fact, the prophet has the undesirable dynamic of having to endure the animosity that really ought to be going to God. That's what makes a preacher's job so difficult. They're not going to listen to you because they don't listen to me. Surely the whole house of Israel is stubborn and obstinate. Behold, I've made your face as hard as their faces and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery, harder than flint, I've made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them. Skipping over to verse 17. Son of man, I've appointed you a watchman on the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, 
warn them for me. And when I say to the wicked, you'll surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked way that he may live, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I'll require at your hand. Turn over to Ezekiel 33. It's like a repeating storyline. Ezekiel 33. I'm going to read from the first of the chapter again. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, speak to the sons of your people. And by the way, he was a prophet in exile. He was carried off to Babylon in the second siege. If I bring a sword upon the land... Now I want you to watch the imagery. If I bring a sword upon the land and the people of the land take one man from among them and make him their watchman and he sees the sword coming... And he blows on the trumpet and warns the people, we've got the sword and the trumpet. I don't want you to miss this. Then he who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take a warning, and a sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but he did not take warning. His blood will be on himself. But had he taken warning, he would have been delivered of his life. Can you say amen? But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet and the people are not warned and a sword comes and takes a person from them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from the watchman's hand. And can I not hear the echoes of James saying, let not many of you think to be teachers for you're going to be judged more strictly. And by the way, in our system, we could include those teachers who are really pastor teachers or teacher pastors But he is certainly most pointedly speaking to those that are religious teachers in the church. Every pastor listening to me here today who watches this online better make sure they understand something. God speaks clear enough to be heard and He wants to be echoed in your life and in your ministry and in your preaching. God warns and it's a gospel warning because person that's of any intelligence can hear and understand and move. But now let's go to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20. And we are very clearly convicted that the Apostle Paul has read the Old Testament probably many, many times. Acts chapter 20. He's leaving Ephesus. Remember, this is where they burned all their magic books and scrolls, friends. Don't sell those video games God tells you to get rid of that are no good. Burn them. Don't sell those CDs. When it's time to cleanse your MP3 file or choose a different listening genre on Spotify, you can leave that behind. But if you've got the actual substance, destroy it lest it pervert and prevent someone's future progress in Christ. It's not worth money. He's leaving this town where they destroyed 50,000 drachmas of books. I'm telling you, it was an expensive bonfire. And before he goes... He says in verse 25, Now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. And I want you to hear the echoes of an Old Testament prophet in the next verse. Therefore I test to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Why? For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. And then he says, be on guard for yourself and for the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Elders, deacons, deaconesses, pastors, 
administrators. This is for us to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And he goes farther and he says, some of them are going to come out of your own membership. So there are Seventh-day Adventists. Doesn't mean that they're as pure as the driven snow. You're to test the fruits of their life, especially the attitude. These three verses are a clear warning that when God entrusts a man or a woman or a group of people with a message and they don't give it, there will be blood on their hands. Some of you have read this book. It's not a particularly new book. Can you see the subtitle here? The house is upside down. And the subtitle is Taking Back Your Faith from the American Dream. I want to read a few quotes to you. Here we stand in the middle of the American Dream. Pick up the reoccurring word dominated by self-advancement, self-esteem, self-sufficiency, individualism, materialism, and universalism. You may not know what that last word means, but it's the idea that everybody's going to be saved and it'll all be okay. That's not what we believe, unfortunately. We'll wait for that one. Platt was about to get a new church. I don't know if he still is, but he was the pastor of a mega church, big Baptist church. And on the eve of getting his church, he had found himself just a few days before in India, standing up on a high hill. I'll read you the story. Just a few months before becoming a pastor, I stood up on a mountain in the heart of Hyderabad, India. This high point in the city housed a temple for Hindu gods. I smelled the offerings that had been given to the wooden gods behind me. I saw teeming masses in front of me. Every direction I turned, I glimpsed an urban center filled with millions upon millions. I've been to Hyderabad. We have a wonderfully large Seventh-day Adventist school there that is full primarily of Islamic people and they're on waiting lists to get in there. Can you say amen? And they talk freely about Jesus. And then it hit me. The overwhelming majority of these people had never even heard the gospel. They offer religious sacrifices day in and day out because no one told them that in Christ a final sacrifice has already been offered on their behalf. As a result, they live without Christ and if nothing happens, they'll die without Christ. I stood on that mountain. God gripped my heart and flooded my mind with two resounding words. Wake up. Wake up and realize that there are infinitely more important things in your life than football in a 401k. Wake up and realize there are real battles to be fought as different from the superficial, meaningless battles you focus on. Wake up to the countless multitudes who are currently destined for a Christless grave. And then one, two little paragraphs later, he says, I remember when I was preparing to take my first trip to Sudan in 2004. The country was still at war and in the Darfur region in western Sudan. And they had just begun to make headlines. A couple of months before we left, I received a Christian news publication in the mail. Now, he doesn't tell what it is. There's some good dignity and judgment in that. He says the front cover had two headlines side by side. I'm not sure if the editor planned it or if he just missed it in a really bad way. On the left headline, it said, First Baptist Church celebrates new $23 million building. 
A lengthy article followed, celebrating the church's expansive new sanctuary, the exquisite marble, intricate design, beautiful stained glass. It was all described in vivid detail. On the right side was a much smaller article. The headline for it read, Baptist Relief Helps Sudanese Refugees. Now listen, if you have a Baptist background, praise the Lord. I am thankful for the way you seek to live out the principles of your life. This is a Baptist, I believe, writing the book. So I'm just reading the story. He wants to make a point. Unfortunately, it applies to Seventh-day Adventists every bit as much as it does to the Baptist. On the right was a much smaller article. The headline for it read, Baptist Relief Helps Sudanese Refugees. Knowing who I was about to go to Sudan, my attention was drawn. The article described how 350,000 refugees in western Sudan were dying of malnutrition and might not live to the end of the year. It briefly explained their plight and sufferings. The last sentence said that Baptists had sent money to help relieve the suffering of the Sudanese. I was excited until I got to the amount. Now remember what was on the left. First Baptist Church celebrates $23 million building. On the right side, the article said, Baptists have raised, fill in the blank. Baptists have raised $5,000 to send to the refugees in western Sudan. He goes on to write, $5,000? That's not enough to get a plane into Sudan, much less one drop of water to people who need it. $23 million for an elaborate sanctuary and $5,000 for hundreds of thousands of starving men and women and children, most of whom were dying apart from faith in Christ. What's the problem? Quoting out of Will Williman's book, in this case, Walter Brugman. If you're a coward by nature, he's talking to preachers. But it could go for parents. If you're a coward by nature... If boldness does not come to you naturally, then you can get down and hide behind the text. He's talking about the Bible. I didn't say it. God said it. Go argue with Him. Elizabeth Actemeyer says, as a preacher, your job is to preach the text, not to apologize for it. Are there any amens out there, preachers? Oh, congregation, good. You want that. Baptismal preaching recognizes the canonical text that's talking about the Bible as the norm. We live or die as God's new people by our ability to listen to these texts without killing the preacher for speaking them. Now, I have on this nice little wooden table books. This one's a compilation. It's called Christian it's called Principles for Christian Leadership. Christian Service. Testimonies on Sexual Behavior. Yes, that's a book. It's a compilation. The Adventist Home. Messages to Young People. Councils on Speech and Song. And then nine books entitled Testimonies for the Church. I have at the end of the stack a newly uh, launched series of the conflict of the ages, which is a commentary on the Bible, patriarchs and prophets, prophets and kings, desire of ages, which is on the life of Christ, Acts of the Apostles, the New Testament Church, and the Great Controversy. It's called Conflict Beautiful. It's been out in our connecting corridor. They're launching this with an attempt to bring as much class to the subject matter as it deserves by the way it's packaged and put together. And it is just truly an amazing rendition but I've wondered 
in preparation for this sermon. If there aren't some Adventist or some Adventist churches who maybe ought to back up and re-examine number 13 because if you never read the Bible and if you never read what the Bible says end-time people would have, could you be ignoring the prophet like the inhabitants of Jerusalem ignored Jeremiah? in the days when the sword was on its way, is it possible that maybe we're not as much of the remnant church as we thought we were? Is it possible that the spirit of prophecy is not really operative in the church and that the culture of acceptance and affirmation and self-esteem has hijacked the family of God? Have we been squeezed into the world's mold? Or do we still have peculiar speech as Will Willimon challenges us? Sober. Sober. Why is it that churches are backing up and schools are closing down? When Jesus told Joshua, if you don't turn to the left or the right, nobody will be able to stand against you. Why is it when Jesus said, if you go, I'll go with you? Maybe it's because we don't have much of an admonition or a determination to go. And maybe when we don't go, things slow. I've never seen, I mean, when I was such a poor kid, it was embarrassing, but we drove junky cars. My parents did put me in church school, but I've told you the stories before, that big tan Chevrolet station wagon with that big 350 V8, but it didn't run right. There was no fuel injection in those days. It was all carburation, and things were finicky, and my mom used to have to sit there, put it in neutral at the stoplight, and rev the engine like she was at a drag race, and then drop it into drive, and we were the fastest people away. But if she didn't do that, it would die, and we'd block traffic. Every day, my mama took me to a church school, but there are people listening to me who don't think our church schools are good enough for their kids. That's not what these books say. I was in a mosque yesterday. I found out that they don't have music in their worship service. You know why? It's the same reason we don't let, and PMC does the same thing, we don't take canned music in this church. And there's a reason. Because as soon as you bring it in, you bring in the spirit of the world. Because all those things we would not have up on the... All those things we wouldn't put up here, like a rock and roll band, as long as it's in a track and we can't see it, it's like, it's okay. Last night we had four Islamic young women here in this church, and afterwards I talked with them about it, and I explained to them that we have the same concern. Why do we have that concern? Because these books caution us and warn us but we're not reading them so we're not very unified on how we worship I don't know how to unify a church that won't listen to God through inspiration and the prophetic message if they wouldn't listen to Ezekiel because they wouldn't listen to God I used to think well what I need is an advanced degree nothing wrong with an advanced degree But I did figure out before I read what Ezekiel said or before it registered me that my doctorate of ministry or my PhD wasn't going to be the thing that put me over the top with a rebel church member. Are we really embracing the spirit of the prophets?
I don't think so. And you know what? There's a world. If there's billions that have never heard the voice of Jesus, there are other billions of Christians who have never heard the plan of salvation explained through the simplest terms of the sanctuary. But we've decided in America that we probably shouldn't keep doing it the same way. I want to tell you, we've had 300 people here every night, over 1,000 people on different nights online. And I want to tell you, we got stronger as the 12 nights went by, not weaker. I didn't say you didn't get tired. I looked at Pastor Page. I saw a member walking through the basement this morning. Tired. You see, friends, I'm running with you. And when I say amen to this sermon, I cross the finish line on Jesus on prophecy. 16 sermons in 12 days, really 14 sermons, two of them preached two times. And I want to tell you, I am so thankful for every one of you that watched online, sent me words of encouragement, and showed up here night by night so that I wasn't doing this by myself. Amen. I had a member tell me on the way out of first service, Pastor, the reason this turned out so good, my paraphrase is that we were all praying. Jesus only gave two commands before He went back to heaven. One was wait and pray. And the other was go. You know what? We quit going. Not completely. The remote controls got us at home and our lazy boys got us turning into lazy men and women. But I'm here to tell you, if you're going to be the remnant and not go, and not care, God's going to say, I gave you this message. Yes, it's a warning, and yes, it's an invitation, but you knew the sword was coming. You didn't blow the trumpet. There's blood on your hands. Nathan Green was nice enough to loan me this. We're not going to have any church discipline moments right now. <laughs> I was driving home to change into my suit for one of the meetings this week. And Brother Jim, I was listening to our radio station. I've got it set as a preset. And there came on a little advertisement. It was forgiving. And one man was talking to another and he said, when I sense that materialism is getting a hold of me, he said, I get out my sword. What's your sword? He said, I get out my checkbook. And I draw my pen out and I sharpen my sword. I've got a slide. I didn't put it in this series. But it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and there's a motorcycle hanging from it over here. 
And there's all the other little delicacies that life offers hanging around the tree. And there's a man and a woman standing there. And she's got her hand on his shoulder. And he's reaching over to get something. Now listen. Every member of the, re- of the remnant is going to have blood on their hands. I don't want the blood I described a few minutes ago. I want to pull the sword. And I'm not letting the devil get away with my kids or my wife or my church or my church members. I'm going to pull the sword and I'm going to fight in the name of Christ with the sword of the Spirit. And I'm going to get a little blood on my hands, but it's not the kind the devil wants on my hands. Some of you have got your sword so thoroughly sheathed and tied up because you've got cable TV at your house. And you've got to have the latest this and the latest that. You've never learned about frugality and thrift. Maybe it's because the great call of Jesus and the love that made you the pearl of great price and the apple of his eye and the treasure which he'd give himself away for has not been discovered. But this morning, I'm appealing to you. Pull out the sword, which is your pocketbook. Pull out the sword, which is your date book. Pull out the sword and know this. There is going to be blood on your hands one way or the other. Whether it's the fruit of the fight or whether it's the evidence of the fright and self-preservation, it's up to you and me. It's a David versus Goliath battle. And when David went to the priest of Nob and he asked for food, they gave him the showbread and he said, do you have any weaponry? And he said, just Goliath's sword. He said, that's a good one. I'll take it. It isn't changing. There'll be a thousand reasons why you can't do and don't have an interest in, but lead with your head and let your heart come along behind, friends, but pull the sword and let's put some blood on our hands. There's a whole world out there that doesn't know that people don't burn in hell forever and you don't pay your way out of it. There's a whole host of people out there that don't understand that the real grace is not that which cleanses the record, but it's what opens the door to a life-changing relationship with God and that judgment isn't about condemnation, it's about wonderful hope and that if you were going to be in heaven forever, you'd be glad you could be there because God is the good news. So friends, if you want to be the remnant, you're going to have to get some blood on your hands. What did Paul say? Unless the gospel is, is empowered by the spirit of prophecy, the trumpet won't give a certain sound. And remember, that trumpet gives a certain sound because you're in a war. And that's why the book of Revelation says... The devil, the dragon, was angry with the woman and went to make war with the seed. But you know what? God's giving you the chance to let the trumpet make a certain sound. Amen? Amen. Amen. Lord, forgive us when the American dream has been allowed to become our dream, our main dream. 
Forgive us, Lord, when we've been wooed away, seduced by opportunity and money, popularity and freedom. Forgive us, Lord, when we've forgotten that there are 26,000 young people every day who are either dying of starvation or disease, and much of it preventable. Lord, may we go forth from this place knowing what a glorious privilege has been given us to represent you in the final lead-up to the final battle. Thank you for these 12 nights. Thank you for what will go forward on Wednesday night as we continue studying the book of Daniel. And I'm praying, Lord, wrestle with us as you may. But in the end, may we hang on while you're setting us free. Career, spouse, pocketbook, date book, all things, Lord, given over to you. Please reconstitute inside of us a love for you, a love for each other, and a love for those that are being invited into this fellowship. Thank you for every person that's come before us and been faithful. Thank you for those that are too tired to fight like they used to. Inspire the young to know that they are to live a distinctly different life and their mentors to be principled, consistent Christians. Now, Lord, take us on to the high places. May we have blood on our hands in this gospel battle. And may it be the blood of the dragon as we take back prisoners of hope. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.